Hi everyone, welcome to the October 23rd, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Gabrielle Bryant, filling in for Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Lufthansa announcing that they will reinstate the nonstop flight from Denver to Munich with hopes of bringing numerous jobs and an estimated $80 million in revenue to Colorado. Patricia Calhoun from Westward, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's good news. It shows obviously the that Denver is booming enough that they think this flight will work this time. They took down the beer garden in the terminal at DIA a little early. That was up for, for Oktoberfest. And, but let's hope we have oompa bands on the light rail when it starts going out to the airport in, next April. That's the bigger trip that's going to be important. Now, Denver is definitely booming. David Copel with the Independence Institute and DU Law School, what do you make of this? The national media that covers the airline business has considered this to be of no interest at all. What they wrote about Lufthansa uh, yesterday has been that they're thinking of offering high-speed Internet on their flights. This is a very minor thing in terms of Lufthansa's profitability, except that, thanks to Mayor Hancock, they're going to get a $5 million subsidy for f creating $4 million in new jobs. Now, there's all these pie-in-the-sky projections as, oh, that's going to multiply into $80 million. Well, perhaps. Uh, it means that people flying from Sarajevo to Denver, that, that's a major market right there, uh, will only have to make one stop. But for people who are flying from Germany to Denver, they already had a nonstop from Frankfurt. So I would guess that the actual, it'll be more convenient for some people to come from Munich than from Frankfurt, but I, I think the actual genuine increase in Denver tourism is, is likely to be small. Natasha Gardner with 5280 Magazine. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on this. I don't know if you plan to make that trip when it uh, comes back around. What do you think? I'd love to. I'd love to travel. So any, any more direct flights is, is, is a good thing for a traveler out of DIA. If this feels a little bit like deja vu, it should. And that's because this flight did exist already in 2007, 2008. It was actually taken away and lost in the graveyard of, of deleted flights or canceled <laughs> flights that happened in the airline industry. And that's just part of the industry that happens. It's, it's fine. But recently, we've also had that happen happened with the Panama City flight, which after just, a, I think it was nine months, got scaled back dramatically as well. So the question is, how do we keep these flights viable, these international flights viable at DIA? Certainly the funding that they've received, the incentives are going to help that, and that's part of the argument for why they're saying that this is coming back now in the way that it is. Um, time will tell for sure if that actually works. In the meantime, yeah, I think I, I want to book a flight to Munich. Why not? Uh, Craig Silverman with Silverman and Olivas and 710 KNUS. What would you think? What do you think? Well, I think it's good news. And what's changed? Denver is booming. Colorado is booming. It's hard to ignore anymore. It gives us more options to get over to Europe before Europe goes away. And you know what else this means? Now the Syrian refugees are only a direct flight away from Denver, Colorado a good thought process. Let's get right into it. National political news had a number of headlines this week after Joe Biden announced that he will not run for president, which boosted Hillary Clinton's campaign prospects amid testimony in front of Congress <coughs> for the Benghazi hearing. Meanwhile, Republican Representative Paul Ryan agreed to run for House Speaker with specific conditions. Now, Patty, there's a lot of issues going on in this particular topic. What do you take from it? 
Well, and on top of that, we've got the Republican debate coming to see you next week. So we are going to be talking about this upcoming election a lot over the next few weeks. We didn't learn a lot from the Benghazi hearing, the billionth Benghazi hearing yesterday, beyond the fact that Hillary Clinton can actually sit and take it for a very long period of time. You're in that chair for half an hour. She was there for hours and kept her cool pretty much, which I think stood her in a very good stead. The fact that Joe Biden decided not to run is a win-win for Hillary. It's hard to imagine that there is any real obstacle that is going to stand in her way to getting the nomination unless we suddenly learn a lot more that we didn't know about Benghazi and her insane use of the private servers for the emails, one of which was based here. Um, the Paul Ryan, good luck to you. Get that man an asbestos suit. I think he could be a very good speaker if he's willing to do it, if they take his conditions, but that is just going to be quite the three-ring circus. So good luck to him. David, there's very many places that we can go on this topic. What would you say from well, it? Joe Biden's rationale for his candidacy was never, I'm the smartest guy you could elect, but he had an affable uh, attitude and understood the difference between a political opponent versus a, uh, a personal enemy. And uh, if he'd been smart enough to start this thing half a year sooner, uh, he might well uh, have won the Democratic nomination and the presidency. For Benghazi, I think everyone has to agree that at least some of the hearings were a complete waste of time, namely putting Hillary Clinton under oath as if, oh, now she'll feel compelled to tell the truth. She has more experience being cross-examined uh, than anybody uh, outside the mafia. We learned from this that when she was telling the families of the Benghazi victims and the American public that this attack on the Benghazi compound was a spontaneous riot because of a YouTube video. She knew that was a lie right from the very start and was saying the opposite to, uh, to Egypt and to her own family. Uh, Natasha, what do you make of this topic? Well, I think uh, Joe Biden is kind of like the guy you invite to your party who you really want to come, and you spend the first hour looking out the window wondering if he's going to come. Well, Biden's RSVP is finally here. He's not coming. It's time to move on, um, which leads to Clinton. I think that what was interesting as well, I don't think a lot of progress was made in getting to the truth or a better understanding of what could have been done to prevent or fix or solve or done after um, the situation in Benghazi. What we did instead was see Hillary Clinton in, on, in the hot seat for many, many hours, looking quite presidential, actually. And if the GOP, GOP's plan was to sort of, you know, hurt her reputation, I'm not sure that they achieved that um, with the hearings this week. With Paul Ryan, you know, I've heard people already describe it as a selfless act, like he's some martyr who's going in to save the GOP and, and Congress in Washington, D.C. Um, I won't quite discount that. I think that, he, that there is some sort of call to duty here, but I think it's also uh, a chance for him. I think he sees that if I can go in and do these things, then I would have a really good chance at a presidential run, and that has to be part of his calculation. Whether he's able to do that or not, whether the, the GOP people have decided, yeah, we'll go along for it now, we'll stay with that promise for the long run, is yet to be determined. Um, and I think he has a, a tough road ahead of him. Craig, there's a lot to bite off with this one. Can you wrap it up for us? Well, mark me down as being with David. And the only way she looked presidential, in my judgment, was uh, her imitation of Barack Obama, who told the same lie to the families. 
told it at the United Nations. And you shouldn't lie about murder. You shouldn't lie in general, but especially not to families of the deceased. She told the truth to her daughter, but she lied to the family of the survivors. That's a little shocking. And thanks to this uh, Benghazi hearing, we learned this truth. I don't know that Joe Biden's not going to show up at this party. He gave a campaign speech. He specifically dissed Hillary Clinton. What does he know that we don't know? She's under investigation by the FBI. She could be indicted. Who's waiting in the wings? Joe Biden. He says, I'm ready. I'm rested. I'm not saying that's going to happen because, uh, you know, it's, but it's possible. It's possible. And uh, Hillary maybe didn't get knocked out at that Benghazi hearing, but she took some hard and legitimate punches. As for Paul Ryan, if he can't run things as Speaker, who can? And the answer to that is nobody. And that's the problem with the GOP. They're in disarray. Even while Hillary Clinton is telling her stories, they're so disorganized that they can't take advantage of it. But we'll see what happens in Boulder this week. It'll be interesting. New frontrunner in Iowa, Ben Carson, and uh, he could be formidable. All right, we're going to localize it with this next one. A number of citizens could lose their health coverage after Colorado Health Op was shut down by the state due to financial issues. According to the Denver Post, the decision could impact nearly 83,000 members. The nonprofit is now suing to regain the right to sell policies in 2016. David, what do you make of this topic? It's not the only place that's happened. Same thing in, in Oregon, Kentucky, New York, Nevada, Louisiana. These uh, Obamacare nonprofit health co-ops uh, sold insurance at a much lower price than the market rate. So, of course, lots of people signed up for it. And their business plan was that other insurers who had a uh, mix of healthier customers who were profit centers for the insurance companies, uh, that money would be taken from them and given to the co-ops except it turns out there was less money available for that, and so now the co-ops are financially unsustainable because the whole Obamacare is financially unsustainable. We could have done something straightforward like Lyndon Johnson would have done, which is say we want to give more health insurance to people who can't afford it, so let's raise taxes or cut spending or borrow more money from the Chinese or whatever and pay for it and do that as a straightforward thing. But instead we have this Rube Goldberg thing that is that what I just described, but in a way that tries to deceitfully hide it from the American public and essentially says, young, healthy people, we will make you buy extremely overpriced health insurance so you can subsidize older people with health problems, and it turns out that there's not enough suckers out there to buy insurance which costs two or three times what its actuarial value is uh, in the health insurance coverage that these people get, and so the co-ops are going under, and Obamacare is on its way to going under, but to a degree that was part of the plan anyway, uh, as Barney Frank said, just a transition to government-run, uh, government control of all your health. Uh, and a single-payer system.
83,000 people sounds like a lot of people to me. Um, maybe not so much in the grand scheme of things. Natasha, what do you make of this? It is a lot of people. It's, you know, about the size of Longmont. And that's how many people will be looking for new insurance plans come November 1st, which is when open enrollment happens. Um, one other thing that, that, that for me, whenever I have this conversation about the Affordable Care Act, is super in, in, incredibly important is that it impacts so many people's lives in different ways. And in the media, we aren't always good about talking about those individual stories. And I have to say that in my in my own job, in my reporting, Affordable Care Act comes up like the weather does. It's the type of people things that people talk about and they say, oh, well, my son who doesn't have a job after graduation has insurance and they talk about that because he broke his leg while he was skiing at Vail and, you know, whatever else. Or they talk about... Um, somebody who was able to go in for a preventative health care measure and was able to find something early and take those preventative care measures instead of dealing with a long-term illness. So as we have these discussions, I just always try to think back to those sort of private or, or, or work-related conversations that I'm having about how this impacts people on a really small level because 83,000 Coloradans are now facing the question of, okay, what do I do as of November 1st? Now, we know that the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare is not a perfect system, but it is an alternative to what we had before. What do you make of this topic? It's just more political nonsense. Even that name, Affordable Care Act, it's really not affordable. It's expensive as can be. We were promised that it would save us $2,500 a year as families. That's, uh, I imagine, not what you're being told as you walk around uh, Colorado. Uh, the parade of horribles have just begun. You know, all those exceptions and exemptions, they were delayed to kick in 2016. I think everybody realizes that Obamacare really can't work. People can't afford it. And the plan is to turn it into universal health care. And the only people who might object is the big insurance companies who are part of this Rube Goldberg schemes. They were cut in on it. They've been supporting it. They've been making lots of money. But what is their role once we go to universal health care? I think this is just the start of a snowball that's rolling, and Hillary, in their mind, would be the perfect person to then have Hillary care, which will be more a form of universal health care. Mm. Hillary Clara. Hillary Care. I haven't heard that one yet. Patty, can you wrap this up for us? Well, I got a call from one of those 83,000 people who'd lost their health care on Saturday morning right after this announcement came down before the last hope of having a judge let them continue and uh, end it on Monday. And it's not easy. I mean, there are so many programs you have to look at if you call up and try to um, try to get this affordable care program. If you've got a family, if you've got a pre a pre uh, a previous condition, the thing is, even though you are able to be covered now with that previous condition, it doesn't make it easy to get the health care. So it would have been nice for these 83,000 people to have a little bit of warning because they are scrambling now. And there are not a lot of programs out there that are really attractive. There are a lot of programs, but there are not a lot that look good, especially to families that have some challenges. All right, we're going to get into this next one now. Grocery stores are attempting to have full-strength beer and wine sold in their stores by bringing the issue directly to voters. The ballot is being backed by Your Choice Colorado, with supermarkets like King Supers, Safeway, and Walmart behind them. Local area liquor stores like Argonaut Wine and Liquor oppose the initiative, claiming it will hurt their bottom line. Natasha, this topic is of interest uh, to me. Uh, what do you make of this? Well, as someone who's covered the craft beer industry in Colorado extensively, this is something that I've debated for many 
many years. And I have to say, after many years of debate, I'm actually in support of it. I think that we should have um, the, the sales in grocery stores. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, I'm someone who supports local business. I try to even shop as, as frequent as possible in my neighborhood. But selling beer in stores, I don't believe, is going to kill those small liquor stores. And we have a great case example of this with the Super Target at Colorado and Alameda. There are liquor stores right across the street. There are liquor stores in the neighborhood as well. What I would encourage people to do is to follow what some of the other local liquor stores have done, like, say, Argonaut, who have a dedicated craft beer buyer who works so hard to bring in the new, new breweries, to bring in the new cans, to bring in the new bombers, to get those into those stores. What I would encourage, say, King Supers, if this passes or if this actually happens in Colorado, to do is to have that, to have a dedicated beer buyer, beer, beer buyer who's interested in bringing Colorado brands into their, onto their shelves and exposing um, their, their shoppers to the new, new trends in the industry. Craig, do you think um, with the liquor stores, do you think their uh, concerns are valid? Oh, absolutely. Some liquor stores will go out of business. There's no doubt about it. But ultimately, you have to say, what role does the government have in this? Let's let the free marketplace work, and the liquor stores that will survive will have uh, easier parking, lower prices, better products, better selection, something that will draw the customers in. It's called free market competition, and I'm all for it. Patty, what do you make of this? I mean, people are going to buy alcohol regardless. It doesn't really matter what it is. So I know, you know, it means one thing to a consumer and another thing to the businesses. What would you say? Well, I'll go Natasha one better. I don't just patronize local stores. I patronize as many local liquor stores as I can. <laughs> uh, it, Colorado's liquor laws are crazy. I mean, we still have 3-2 beer in the grocery stores. How many, how many states still have anything resembling 3-2 beer? We've got these long, weird legacies of prohibition that need to be cleared up. I would say that is definitely one that needs to be cleared up. I think if this passes, supermarkets will be smart because if you look at the people who like craft beer in Colorado, which is a huge market, it's going to make a difference in which grocery store they go to or whether they go to a liquor store because they care that much. I mean, there are people who won't go to Joe's Sports Bar if all they're going to be able to get is Coors or Bud or Miller because they want Colorado craft beers. So I think if it passes now, the Colorado craft beer industry is strong enough to be able to survive it. But it's going to take a lot of work by consumers to make sure that the big stores understand this is the kind of thing we want. But it is true. The government has no business in regulating where you can go buy a bottle of wine on Sunday. David, I think it's a good idea that this is being put to the voters because I know it's something, you know, that people want to see happen. So what would you make of this? Well, I guess unlike the rest of the panel, I'm not so ready to just jump on this free market ideological bandwagon here. <laughs> the craft beer industry opposes this, and for good reason, because they know when they go to liquor stores, they can make a pitch and say, yeah, if, if you're New Belgium, yes, New Belgium's going to be sold at King Supers and Safeway. But if you're a guy who's just starting up, you've got an easier chance of going in one-on-one -on -one with, with, with liquor stores and, and giving your product a try than you do with the mass purchasing of King Supers and Safeway and Walmart and all that. Because you go to any King Supers or whatever, they have a certain amount of space. They do not have room for the niche beers and things like that. They are going to be selling you exclusively the mainstream 
products and not the things and they don't have the room on their shelves to take a chance on somebody who's new and an innovator. So as somebody who thinks that Colorado's craft beer industry, which is the, the greatest that has ever existed in the history of the world, literally, uh, is a good thing, I'm not ready yet to just go for something uh, that could be quite harmful to it. Alrighty, uh, local governments across the state are reconsidering their panhandling laws. The change would allow panhandlers to repeatedly ask after being denied and would permit asking in previously restricted areas like patios and near ATM machines and after dark. The change was brought about as the First Amendment rights rights issue from the ACLU. Uh, Craig, what would you make of this topic? Boy, it's tough. You can arrest somebody for repeating themselves. You know, a lot of us would get arrested. <laughs> it, we've said the same things before. Uh, just driving over here, you know, guys with signs, they put it up, you look at them, then they put the sign, give you more plaintiff look. Even if it makes you feel uncomfortable, it should not be against the law. There will always be the harassment law repeated, unwelcome, crude communications, that law will stay on the books. But I, I think it, it, there are First Amendment issues involved. Uh, homelessness in Denver is a huge issue. Uh, Patty, what would you make of this topic? Well, and panhandling is just a tiny subset of that. And in fact, in many cases, the sign flyers, for example, by the side of the road, are not your average homeless person. You know, they're people who actually, some of them make a lot of money and it's just the way they do it. It's very tricky, and to anyone who's in Denver right now, they'd be shocked to think there actually are laws against panhandling, just judging by how much there is by the side of the road, how much there is downtown. Fortunately, the harassment laws will stay in place, and I don't think the panhandling, it's unfortunate, but I don't think it is really affecting your quality of life as you walk down the street. David, what do you make of this topic? I mean, for some people, yeah. it's a personal thing. What, what do you say? I, I think the, the cities are rushing prematurely to change their laws. This is a case that came out of Grand Junction. Judge, uh, Federal District Judge Arguello struck down that ordinance because the city had failed to provide sufficient proof for some parts of it. So, for example, it says you can't panhandle in a parking garage, which is an inherently coercive kind of thing to do when people are isolated in a structure. But she said, well, you in Grand Junction, you only you had two witnesses who had some anecdotes about instances of aggressive panhandling, and none of those occurred in a parking garage, so therefore the parking garage thing has to go. I think if cities are willing to stand up and put on a stronger factual record, than Grant Junction did, uh, those ordinances might be upheld. And remember, this is just a decision that came down on September 30th from the Federal District Court. Grand Junction has 45 days to consider an appeal, or they can, uh, they've already modified their ordinance to some degree. So I don't think the, the weak factual situation in the Grand Junction case means that cities have to abandon all of their things to prohibit panhandling in situations which are inherently coercive and threatening. Now, uh, this makes me think of what's, what happened with the camping ban, what's going on with the uh, community center surrounding the Denver Rescue Mission. Natasha, what do you make of this topic? Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. I think first I have to commend um, Denver Police Chief uh, White for, for saying after the Grand Junction um, ruling came down that, that let's hold off, let's not pass out any more of these because I think he and, and many other people in the city see a trend that we have to stop criminalizing homelessness, that we have to stop criminalizing poverty, we have to stop 
stop criminalizing social issues that need to be addressed in different ways and rather than handing them a citation or arresting them. Um, and actually, our November issue of 5280, we have a massive package on homelessness, which I hope will introduce people to some of the different um, faces of homelessness, how this, this topic is really much broader than the, the stereotypes that we often hear about in the media. So I think that this will not be the last time we talk about this at this table. In fact, I think as, as this heats up um, in the coming weeks, this is, and especially as the Denver Rescue Mission, um, Lawrence Street Shelter issue remains in debate, where this is something the city needs to talk about and will continue to talk about. All right, we're going to wrap the show up now. Patty, what's your disgrace of the week? Uh, as a fan of Puerto Vallarta, I am very sorry to hear about the very unfortunately named Hurricane Patricia headed its way. So good luck to Mexico. David? The Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who in 1941 urged Hitler to kill all the Jews. Now, as it turned out, obviously Hitler didn't get the idea from him. Hitler had been into that since he published his book Mein Kampf. Uh, but it shows the continuing core of the Arab, of the Israeli-Palestinian problem, which is the Palestinians have chosen for themselves leaders who don't want two states peacefully coexisting. They want to exterminate the Jews. Natasha? Donald Trump's Twitter account, which uh, retweeted something that sort of insulted Iowa viewers, but I think it also um, is, is not the last he's going to hear about it because it also brings in GMOs and big farming and agra and all of that. Uh, I think he's going to be very sad that that tweet went out. Craig? Uh, thanks to Todd Shepard, Complete Colorado, I read about murder abilia. Actually, he linked an Aurora Sentinel article. Somebody wrote to the Aurora Theater convict, and he wrote back, and then they sold it online for $480. That's disgraceful. Patty, what's your say? Something nice. You've gotten your ballot. If you live in Colorado, get out and vote. As of this morning, only 25,000 people had voted in Denver. There are a lot of big issues on this ballot if you live in Denver, so turn yours in. Thanks for that reminder, David. The women in Fort Collins who wanted to change the law so they could walk around topless, John Caldera has announced that the Independence Institute is going to make this its top priority, and he's willing to step forward and be the spokesman for the cause. Natasha. And a total shift. Sometimes my personal life actually coordinates with my work life. Today is my, my son Oliver's birthday. I just wanted to wish him a happy birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Oliver. Craig? Let's pay tribute to Master Sergeant Joshua Wheeler, who lost his life rescuing 70 hostages from the Islamic State in Iraq. Well done, Sergeant Wheeler. I'd like to say something nice about my mom, who paid for uh, my whole family to go to Disney World this week. Uh, that's all the time we have for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember that you can catch any part of the show or CIO Post Game online. And be sure to check out this CIO podcast on iTunes. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Gabrielle Bryant. Thanks for watching. Have a great night.